welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Editor-at-Large, Kate Wolf, and LARB's Managing Editor, Medea Ocher. Hey, guys. Hey, Eric. Hi, Eric. Today, we have a conversation with Tayari Jones, author of An American Marriage, a book that I really enjoyed reading. This was a book that I had actually been hearing about for months before we actually had Tayari in the studio and when I sat down to actually read it beforehand. Well, of course, because it is Oprah's... Book club selection. Book club selection. Official selection. selection. Yeah, so that was really big news, and it was everywhere, and so obviously you were hearing about it, Eric. Exactly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So it's about a marriage, is it a happy marriage? I didn't get a chance to read this. It's book. a complicated marriage. I think um, that's I, like I think the easy answer is no, it is not a happy <laughs> yeah. marriage. And it also ends relatively quickly because well, technically it doesn't end, but um, I don't think this is giving anything away, but the premise of the book No, it's the setup, yeah. is that, you know, this young couple gets married and they are traveling right after their wedding and the the groom is is arrested is arrested within a year of being married. And so it's a very brief marriage, and the the rest of the book is really dealing with the realities of living as a black man and woman in uh, the United States and how one survives, really. But, of course, also the prison system, the various other... Uh, difficulties that this couple faces. And one of the things that I found really interesting in this interview is that she had, I mean, I'm always interested in the origin stories of any of these narratives, like how somebody comes up with the idea to write a book. And um, in Tayari Jones's case, she said she had actually just overheard a couple talking and the woman said something like, I can't remember the name of the, of the guy, but she had basically said, would you have waited for me? And the setup was that basically he had been incarcerated and had gotten out and this couple then is kind of coming back together and she hadn't waited for him while he had been in jail. And so that's one of the kind of questions that both inspired the novel and kind of haunts it throughout most of the story. And I just found that so fascinating. It's like this just a snippet of overheard conversation can inspire like an entire novel. Just great. Yeah, it's kind of amazing how a writer brain works, huh? All right. Well, before we spoil any more, let's get right to that interview. We're excited to have author Tayeri Jones with us today in the studio. Jones is the author of Leaving Atlanta, which won the Hurston Wright Legacy Award for debut fiction in 2003. She is also the author of The Untelling and The Silver Sparrow. Her latest novel, An American Marriage, was published in February by Algonquin. The novel centers on a black couple torn apart when the husband, Roy, is wrongly accused and then convicted of rape, sentenced to 12 years in prison. Largely told in letters between Roy and his wife, the artist Celestial, during his incarceration, an American marriage offers a wide-angle view of the power and precarity of black life in the contemporary United States, as well as an intimate portrait of a man and woman caught in an impossible situation. Welcome to the show, Tayari. Thank you. So can you start by just telling us a little bit about how you came to write this particular novel and how you see it connected to your previous work? Well, my previous novels were all kind of family stories, what they call a quiet story, Hmm. where it's just about the characters and the way that they interact with one another, sometimes drawn from my own autobiography. But for my fourth novel, I really wanted to try and engage the issues 
of the day in a more overt way, because I am a person who believes that the issues of the day affect our everyday lives, whether we know it or not. But I wanted to kind of tackle a topic head on, and I wanted to write about the collateral effects of incarceration, because I've noticed that the issue of incarceration, trickle they call it mass incarceration because it's happening in mass, and it is really trickling down into the culture. So I wanted to kind of look at that, the way it affects communities, particularly the African-American community. So I wrote this application to do a fellowship at the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard to do some research on the topic. And I did all this research, and I felt like I was upset, I was outraged, but I wasn't inspired to make fiction because mm. for me... Mm-hmm. Fiction is born of ambiguity. And when I was reading about men who are wrongfully incarcerated, there was no ambiguity, right? I mean, they call it wrongful incarceration because it's wrong. Yeah. Right? But I, then I decided, though, to use what I've learned in my other books, which is writing about families, writing about intimacy, writing about the way power plays out with the people who are closest to us. And I decided to look at the ways that a wrongful incarceration affected a marriage, a very young marriage, they're newlyweds when he is taken away. Can you tell us a little bit about the research that you did? What was, were you going through an archive? What did you steep yourself in? Mostly, you know, like I read books, like obviously, which has become the Bible for looking at prison industrial complexes, the new Jim Crow. But I also really got sucked into oral histories. There is a series of oral histories done by McSweeney's, you know, Dave Eggers called Surviving, the one I read was called Surviving Justice. There are about five or six other books in the series, but Surviving Justice were all oral histories of men who were wrongfully incarcerated. And that actually turned out to be the most helpful because what I needed to guide this novel were not the heart-stopping statistics, but the minutia of everyday life and the minutia of emotion and the ways that deprivation affects the way that a person understands the world. What allowed you to find the ambiguity that you were looking for when you turned your eye toward family and the way that incarceration really affects families and how, as you said, I think trickles down? Well, you know, there's this expression where they say that family members of incarcerated people do time on the outside. I don't know if Mm -hmm. you've ever heard that term, but I always thought, yes, kind of, right? Because Being incarcerated is not like any other experience. So while the people who love incarcerated people suffer, but they are not having the same experience as their loved one. They're just not. And so when I was working on the book, I overheard a couple arguing in the mall, and I heard a woman say to a man, Roy, you know you wouldn't have waited on me for seven years. And I was thinking that she was probably right, And he said, well, this wouldn't have happened to you in the first place. Mm. And I thought, he's probably right. And I just realized how there's no real comparing the experiences. But what does that do to a marriage where, you know, you say till death do us part, you say for better or for worse. But what happens if you're married and your partner is taken from you? Is it reasonable to ask that, that the person who is not incarcerated kind of put her life completely on hold, especially when they're newlyweds? Like, is it right of him to ask her to wait? Is it right of her not to want to wait? Or or even if you want to wait, is that possible? Are you putting yourself up to some Herculean tasks that can't ever really, can you actually really wait on a person? That's my question. 
Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And picking up on that, Tayari, one of the things that I there's so many things that are fascinating about your novel. But I think that one of the the things that I noticed at the beginning is that on the one hand, this is a story about, as you said, mass incarceration, wrongful incarceration. But you avoid what I think is one of the tropes that we tend to fall into in fiction that addresses that, right, which is our desire for tales of suffering inside the prison, right, which as the sole focus, right? I think that you kind of avoid, it percolates in sometimes, especially with the old kind of advisor, Walter, Walter, that he meets inside and that helps Roy navigate. But this isn't, for example, American Me or Eldridge Cleaver's stories from jail, right? Or any other stories that kind of, I think, sometimes engage our prurient desire to know about like just how bad it is inside. So how do you think that by shifting that focus to thinking about what this does to a marriage kind of helps push our understanding of the horror of mass incarceration and wrongful accusation? Well, one of the things I tell my students, because, you know, I teach, is I tell my students, I say, you need to write about people and their problems, not problems and their people. Mm. And I think it actually demeans your characters if you forget that they are more than just their predicaments, right? Like Roy, Walter, Celestial, these people are not just a life support system for an issue. They are fully realized characters. In my mind, it's like they're real. And just like I think all of us have something in our life that someone could decide defines us if they want to. But we see ourselves as a combination of so many things. And I had to write these characters the same way that I write any of my other characters. The fact that they're facing prison doesn't mean that they don't get to be funny sometimes. It doesn't mean because they're sad. It doesn't mean they don't have favorite foods or that they can't be jealous and petty. All the things anyone else says because they have their humanity. And I think in fully exploring their humanity, all reaches of it. It makes the reality of what happens to them, this injustice, I think, even more poignant. Because when you read, I hope that when you read this story, you can see glimmers of your own marriage, your own feelings, your own thoughts. Sure. That this could happen to you, too, because Celestial and Roy are not that different than people you know. Right. Something that actually that makes me wonder is, well, how did you meet these characters in a way? I mean, of course, they're fictional. You invented them. But as you said, they're real. And they they really do feel real, I think, when you read, especially the letters back and forth. And Celestial really, the sort of like struggle about what does one do? Does one keep living or does one wait and put yourself on ice, sort of, felt really real to me. So is there a way in which you meet your characters, so to speak? Well, it goes back to this thing about realizing they're not that different than anyone else. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you think about it, the question of how much of your life do you put into your relationship or into supporting your spouse, particularly if you're um, a straight woman, you know, to what extent do you support your man? Especially in African-American community, that's such a value because there is, you know, the feeling that the man is so under siege. So for Celestial, these problems that are theoretical for other people are literal, but the question is, how much do you hold back for yourself? How much can you pursue your own ambition? I mean, this is something I've asked myself. And Mm -hmm. so I just kind of thought about the ways that their lives are just, their problems are exacerbated by this predicament. But really, they are asking questions that we ask every day of modern marriage. Do you mind if I ask you a personal question? Uh Uh-huh. 
<laughs> are you married? I gotta get a T-shirt that says "No, I'm not married." <laughs> but I know people who are. Of course, like right? My parents. But is there a part of this book that feels? I mean, you said earlier that some of their earlier stories were also partly autobiographical. Is there? I mean, aside. You know, as a black woman living in the United States, obviously it is biographical in many ways. In Atlanta, don't forget that the stories are set in my hometown of Atlanta. Oh, right. Right, of course. But what did you bring to this novel from yourself? You know, I really brought a lot of the questions, the question of this idea of the way that these male-female romantic relationships are, in fact, impacted by the racism, the gendered racism, and how then do you negotiate your deeply personal relationships when they intersect with the prejudices of society? I do think that black people actually discuss racism overtly, like it's not just, like, it's a real thing, and like it's a dinner table conversation. One challenge I had when writing this book, and even with my other books, is that when you have characters talking about racism, it feels like an authorial intrusion, Mm -hmm. even though... In real life, black people at dinner talk about racism all the time. So I actually had to tone that down for the book to make it feel natural on the page. That's one of the weird things about fiction, that sometimes real life does not translate to the page. Yeah, right. It might feel like too much. It feels like you're trying too hard, even though you know in real life when you get your family together, people want to talk about racism all day. I've been to dinner about three times in the last week, and we talked constantly about that woman in Oakland who was telling those people they couldn't have a barbecue. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, we talked about it forever. But you can't put that in a book because it feels like you're using the book as an occasion to talk about the police being called on black people for no reason. But in real life, I mean, we just, we went through all angles of it. Like, I have nothing else to say on the topic because we wore it out at dinner. Well, just for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with this, so this was an incident. I can't remember which park in Oakland this was exactly, but there were a group of people having a cookout, right? I mean, just barbecuing some food. And a white woman called the police on them. And then another woman had uh, taped that interaction. Yes, and she ends up crying at the end saying, I'm being harassed. Right. Do you mind telling us a little bit about in what ways that you discuss this incident? Because it also feels, well, I mean, you know, it's happening all the time. But lately we've had one incident after another after another of seeing black people who are just living their lives, right? Taking a nap in a Yale dorm room, having a barbecue, have the police called on them. Well, one of the things we talked about, which is something, too, that I was thinking about when I was working on An American Marriage is, are things getting worse or are things being reported more? Mm -hmm. Mm. Because before the age of cell phones, we would not have known that this woman had called the police on the family just trying to barbecue. Exactly. I think she said they were not using the right kind of charcoal for some regulation or something, but we wouldn't have known about it. So that was one of the questions. And then another question we asked at the table was whether or not what damage is knowing all of these things having on us? Because Mm -hmm. I have found myself a little paranoid in public places now because, you know, like there was a woman, they called the police on her in Waffle House because she didn't want to pay for plastic fork or the people in Starbucks who were just waiting for a friend. I was in a coffee shop just the other day and I normally spread all my stuff out before I go up and place my order. But I noticed that I went right up to place my order because 
it had gotten into my head, yeah. this right. idea that I was vulnerable. And I mean, and I think even when I was working on an American marriage, you know, the way that this idea that your husband could be arrested for nothing, that actually is kind of a thread running through their marriage before it happens because it's like a specter in the room all the time. And how does that affect the way you go through your day-to-day? On a similar note, Tayari, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, there's a way in which an American marriage takes, at least in one way of reading it, a very bleak view of the uplift narrative that kind of Roy, in particular, prior to his incarceration, embodies, right? So this idea that, like, if you do the right things, you get education, you check all the boxes, you'll kind of achieve a future that is as free from pain as possible, right? I mean, and this is a kind of narrative which we can trace back as far as W.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington, albeit in very different ways, and even earlier than that. But I'm wondering, in some senses, like, how do you encounter that narrative, right? Particularly with the kind of political realities that we've seen over the course of the 20th century and the 21st century in Black American life. But I'm going to push back. My book is not bleak. I'm like, take that back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it does have as they, at least a as relatively... They say down south, I rebuke that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I should say it does have a relatively happy. It's well, I'm not, trying not to give away the give ending. Away. Yes, we don't want to give it away. Okay, okay, I'm, I'm gonna hop in here. Yeah, actually, I think that the uplift narrative is real for most of the characters, right? Celestial's father, oh, that's true. Cotton, yeah, and now he's a millionaire. And Roy, yeah, it. I think that what I'm saying is that checking all the boxes is not a guarantee. It does not inoculate you mm, against mm, okay. racism, but it does improve your chances. I mean, I am definitely not one of those people that believes that all black people are equally in peril. Okay. Mm-hmm. I understand that that narrative that all black people are equally in peril, it helps us with our coalition building, right? Like your education won't save you. Your respectability won't save you. And it won't save you, but it does greatly improve your odds. People like to cite, say, Skip Gates. Remember when Skip Gates was arrested outside his home? Yeah. yeah. And they yeah. say, see, your respectability, your education won't save you. But I do like to point out that, you know, Skip Gates is alive. Working-class people often do not come out alive. One of the threads that you're picking up here is that kind of Afro-pessimism, that it's at least one discourse, right, that, yeah, that rejects Yeah, I'm, I'm not that. an Afro-pessimist. I'm not any kind of pessimist, but I'm <laughs> definitely not an Afro-pessimist. I mean, the thing that sustains Roy, yes, he is wrongfully incarcerated, but Roy is so loved by everyone he has ever met in his life. From mm. the moment of his birth, Roy is a loved and cherished person. And as Nikki Giovanni says in her poem, and it's quoted, she says, black love is black wealth, that mm. Because he is incarcerated, that is a terrible injustice done unto him. But he never doubts that he is a valuable human being. His spirit is not destroyed. And I think that's important. I reject the idea that the black experience is an experience of suffering and misery. Yes, we suffer. Yes, we can be miserable. But our lives are rich because of each other. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7 FM, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Tayari Jones, author of An American Marriage. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. 
have Carmen Maria Machado, author of Her Body and Other Parties, here with us at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books, and she's here to give us a book recommendation. Carmen, what book are you going to recommend? It is called The House Next Door by Anne Rivers Seddens. It is an extremely creepy contemporary, so contemporary, I mean, it was written in the 70s. It's a, a ghost story about a couple who live in this like house in the suburbs of Atlanta and watch a house being built behind theirs and then sort of in horror watches like several families cycle through this house and become convinced that it's haunted and it sort of overturns a lot of ideas about the haunted house story especially the one where like something happened there somebody died there because like no nobody died there like it's a literally a brand new house and it's this terrifying book I read it someone recommended it to me I read it in one sitting the prose is gorgeous it's as far as I know her only horror novel like she otherwise wrote sort of southern gothic Uh, literary novels and the cover is very deceptive it's just this pastel sort of like watercolor of like a house Um, but it is one of the scariest books I've ever read in my entire life and I absolutely loved it can you you tell us the circumstances under which you might read such a scary book like are you you alone in a house or are all the lights on do you have a cup of tea? It really depends on what what you need. I like to scare myself in at maximum capacity, so you know, alone. <laughs> you know, reading it reading it alone in the dark, like in your own home. You know, thinking about all the things that could happen there. But no, if you're if you're squeamish or you're sensitive to that sort of thing, I would definitely read it like with other people around, probably in a public place. <laughs> okay, my recommendation. Okay, thank you. I, I, that's a, that's a good guide, I think, yeah. for many. Can you tell us again the title of the book and the author? Yes. So it's The House Next Door by Anne Rivers Seddens. Thank you so much, Carmen. Thank you. We've been speaking with Carmen Maria Machado, author of Her Body and Other Parties. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Tayari Jones, author of An American Marriage. I'm curious about, this is a sort of tangential to the book, but you must have been talking about all of these issues as you were on book tour, right? Um, traveling across the country. Um, what was that like? What was it like going from one place to another in, in, a, in such a varied, diverse country and, and speaking about these issues? What was interesting to me is I thought there would be more women in the audience who would talk about their incarcerated partners, mm-hmm. but mm. so many mothers talking about their incarcerated sons. Mm. And I think that's also because it's less fraught. A mother's love is not fraught in the same way. You don't have the option of whether or not to continue to be his mother the way you have the option to determine whether or not you want to continue to be his wife. Mm. Right. So talking to mothers has been pretty amazing. But also the way that people whose lives have nothing to do with this and incarceration come up. Like there was a woman who said to me that her husband was like some kind of hedge fund dude and he's never home because he's always hedge funding. I don't know what hedge funding involves, but apparently (laughs) you you can't do it at the house. And how she was unsure as to whether or not she should leave him because she just didn't feel like she was married. Hmm. And that caused her, you would not think that could not be further away from Celestial's dilemma. Yeah. But emotionally, emotionally affected this woman in that way. So that has been kind of something. And the most exciting thing has been, I'm a graduate of Spelman College in Atlanta, mm-hmm. historically black women's college. Mm-hmm. My Spelman sisters have shown up in groups of 30 and 40 at almost 
every tour stop, multi-generational. Oh, my God. And that has just been the most rewarding thing because so much of the book involves the historically black colleges in Atlanta. So to have it endorsed by the graduates in this way, it has been rewarding in a way that I, I never knew how much I wanted that until I had it. Actually, well, this is this is sort of following up on that. I was wondering a little bit about your childhood, how you grew up in Atlanta. We do get a lot of different childhood narratives in this book, and they're quite different from each other. But without giving those stories away, you know, readers just have to pick up the book. What was your childhood like? What was your decision like to go to Spelman? Um, what was your time at Spelman like? I had a most unusual childhood. Oh, good. My parents... Um, yes, my, my father, like Roy, grew up in a small town and, you know, immigrated to Atlanta to the promised land. Mm-hmm. My father is a Ph.D. in political science, and my mother is a Ph.D. in economics. They met, in, they met at an NAACP meeting when they were in graduate school. Daddy um, had kind of a black nationalist worldview, and because he's a political scientist, he could get really specific about, <laughs> about, his, world, about his worldview. But, but the, the lure of Atlanta for him was that it was a place where you could be prosperous and black at the same time and grew up in a black community. So I ended up at Spelman. I don't even know how I can say this without, when I say this, it sounds so nuts, but I'm going to say it. I did not know that, I did not emotionally understand that America was a majority white country. I understood mm. that America was 80% white the way you understand that the earth is 80% water. You're standing on firm ground, and you're like, I guess it's 80% water, but how am I standing here on the sidewalk if the world is 80% water? That's how I felt about being a minority in America. I was like, I guess, but I couldn't emotionally process it because I grew up in southwest Atlanta, which is basically an all-black environment. Mm -hmm. So when I was looking at colleges – I got um, a brochure in the mail from, I want to say, Florida State or University of Florida. Anyway, they had um, a Chick-fil-A restaurant on the campus. And I thought, well, this would be convenient. You could go to school there and you could just eat a Chick-fil-A every day. (laughs) So I put that in my stack. And my father said, you know, that's a white school. And it had never occurred to me that all colleges were not historically black colleges. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know the term historically black colleges. We just called them colleges. That was just college, yeah. So um, I decided to go to Spelman. My parents really were pushing it because I was a very young college student. I was only 16. Oh, why um, were you so young? You know what? I do think I think that precocity is a, an expression of parental ambition. <laughs> I really do. And so... Yeah, I went to college so young. And then there's another wrinkle in my story that when I was about 12, my parents moved to West Africa for a while. Oh, wow. Because they wanted to. Okay. um, But when I went to Spelman, I just, I I did not understand what it would mean for it to be a historically black women's college because despite the fact that my parents are intellectuals, no one had ever discussed feminism with me in a meaningful way. And when I went to Spelman and I started to learn about feminism or womanism or what they now call intersectional feminism, mm-hmm. my life made sense to me in an entirely different way. So I think having these parents who were politically astute when it came to race gave me the scaffolding that when I learned a different way of understanding the distribution of power, I was able to slot it in more quickly and completely. Can you talk about like who were some of those feminist writers and thinkers that you gravitated to during that period and kind of how have they 
help shaped, you know, your way of looking at the world and representing it in your fiction? Well, when I read um, Bell Hooks for the first time, I was just like, wait a minute, because I had never considered the way that race and gender could work yeah. as a one-two, as a combo. Yeah. And and then I told my father, and he was like, oh, yes, I know, Gloria. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, you had access to this life-changing theory and just failed to mention it to me who would benefit most? I mean, I was really angry about that. But also, like, you know, reading Alice Walker's In Search of Our Mother's Garden mm. reminded me that being black and female was not a bug, it's a feature, right? Yeah. That the, what was really great about, I think, studying at Spelman was the pleasure I learned to take in being who I am, not just understanding the different ways that I may be marginalized, but just the, the, the glory of the experience. Hmm. Right. Well, one quick question to follow up on that is, so did you live in West Africa for a while? Yes, we lived in, we lived in northern Nigeria for about a year. I was in the ninth grade because um, Daddy had a Fulbright, and I think... It was such an interesting, I sometimes think I should write about it, but I, I don't know. I've, I've never gone that close autobiographically, but I think it was interesting because to be there for my father, in many ways, who had kind of romantic ideas about, about particularly West Africa, I feel mm-hmm. like it was, it was, that year was the year of his dreams. And I think for my mother, it was a little more adjustment because, um, for example, I have a memory of her paycheck being made out to my father. Oh, yeah, she's like, what? Well, I don't know. What is this? So, so that was <laughs> I'm calling Gloria. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, though, education, I mean, they take education very seriously in a way that going to an American public school, which is not the case. Like mm. in an American public school, let's say you don't do all, let's say you do most of your homework, not all of it. Mm. That's fine. But there it was just like you're squandering your opportunity to go to school. Like everyone did their homework or else the punishments were severe. And that was very different. But I'm still in touch. Um, on my book tour in Oakland, one of my friends from ninth grade was there. I was so excited to see her. I haven't seen her since we were girls. Oh, well, I, I actually think, I mean, I would love to hear what you thought about it. I think you should definitely write about it, especially because I feel like we've recently had a real resurgence of African uh, narratives in English um, about the African experience in the United States. So it would be really interesting hearing um, an African-American experience in Africa. You know, I, I often do think about it, but I think I haven't quite decided yet what it means. I, mm-hmm. For me, I can't tap into autobiography until, like my first book was about growing up in Atlanta during the Atlanta child murders. And when I sat down to write about it, I had figured out what it was about it that I thought was significant, and it wasn't who done it. It was for me the way that the Atlanta child murders solidified my understanding of what was like laid the foundation for what I would come to know about class and gender. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote a book about growing up in that time, looking at that. As a matter of fact, in some ways, I think that an American marriage is a continuation of a lot of the things that I started thinking about when I wrote my very first novel. I also want to get a sense from you uh, with regard to the latest novel, An American Marriage. I mean, obviously you were selected um, as one of Oprah's book club. And I wonder what, I I imagine that this has catapulted you to kind of a a level 
if not in terms of literary success, certainly publicity, right, or kind of being publicly known. It's like, how has that changed your experience as an author? How is it, you know, just basically how has that um, changed the situation for you? I was, um, right before we came to record this podcast, I went to the cleaners to get an outfit, and on the way, a guy rode a bike, and he said, hey, aren't you the lady that wrote the book? Oh. (laughs) And I said, yes. He said, I knew it was you, and that has never happened to me ever in my life, and it just happened like about 20 minutes ago. Um, and, I, and my first thought was, oh, my goodness, I look terrible. You know, I've never, I've never worried about being recognized Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. before. Because, I mean, that's the thing about being a writer. Nobody's supposed to know even what you look like. You're supposed to just be a name, not a person going to pick up laundry. Yeah, you can, right be, you can be known everywhere but recognized nowhere. Right, those are the rules. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to say, sir, those aren't the rules. Yeah. But, but I think the most significant thing is when I'm getting ready, I want to try and start maybe writing another book, and I have never, ever felt that I had to write something to live up to the previous work. That's never happened to me. And I have to, you know, I have to get, I want to get my head back to the innocent place I was when I wrote my first book. When I wrote my first book, I didn't even know what an agent was. I had no idea Mm. what any trends in publishing were. I just knew that I had grown up in Atlanta during the murders, and I wanted to write about it. And I always feel that because of that, my first book will always be my most honest book because there was no pressure. I didn't really believe I could ever publish it. I just wrote it because I wanted to. And I want to write another book from that place, but I don't know that I could ever get there. Can you explain what you mean by your most honest book? I mean, I know that there's a part of it that you're saying is like, well, it was my kind of just blind wandering into this. I had the passion to write something um, and I just went for it. But how does how do you think your knowledge of the publishing industry has changed your approach to the writing of fiction? Well, I, have, I do have to, like, exercise those voices out of my head when I write because I, do, I can hear the critiques from... From the editor, I can hear the marketing people in my head sometimes because I, mm. I talk to them all the time. Now, I talk to my publicist every day. Mm-hmm. Every, I talk to him every day, and if I don't talk to him, I start twitching. Like, it's getting to be a problem. And, <laughs> he was and the guy on the bike. Can... Hmm? It would be funny if he was the guy on the bike. who was like, <laughs> you haven't called me today. You're the lady with the book. That is how I feel, though, with my Michael, my publicist. Like, I, I can't live without him now. We've become codependent in a way. And when I get ready to write again, I'm not going to be able to, I have to not, I'm going to have to not talk to him when I'm trying to write because I have to be, I have to be a wild thing when I write. Hmm. That's it. I mean, is that because you feel that it's like the kind of inputs and the feedback and the and the marketing part of it, right? The the book is as an object um, for sale, right, rather than a, a, a pure work of creative generation. Is is that something that you feel is like pulling you in different ways, and you just wish to be free of that kind of pull? I well, if I write, I mean, the way that I write a book is I don't know where it's going. I just kind of chase the story around on the pages, which is why it takes me so many years to write a book, because mm. I'm figuring it out as I go. I'm not aiming for any particular thing. And I think that's what makes my voice distinct, Yeah. because it doesn't remind you of anyone else's book, because I'm not thinking of anyone else's book. Marketing is all about figuring out how the book can fit into a trend, which is going to be other people's books. Yeah, right? yeah. And if I'm going to be free and utterly unique... 
I have to only I have to be alone with my mind. Mm-hmm. Well, so as in oh, as a way of kind of wrapping up here, um, and maybe you don't have an answer to this question yet, but do you have any idea of where you might be going with your next work? You know, I want. I've always wanted to try to write a big book, like a big kind of epic book. Mm-hmm. And I've also always wanted to write a book with four points of view. I have always wanted to do it, and I have never successfully done it. Every book I've written, I've tried to write a quartet. And I want to call it the Atlanta Quartet, like the Alexandria Quartet. That's mm. beautiful. And I want the four pieces to be um, like the Alexandria Quartet, where you could read them separately. Like, you wouldn't have to read them in order. Like, right. they would come together. So I've been trying to do that, but like I said... I do respect the book to be able to go in the direction it wants to go. But I definitely want, I'm a very contemporary writer. Um, I feel that as a black writer, there's a certain pressure to tell one's grandmother's story. There's the idea that your grandmother couldn't tell her story, so you should tell her story. But I feel like if I'm writing, if I'm writing my grandmother's story, then my granddaughters will write my story. You know, at some point, somebody should be able to get to tell their own story. And, (laughs) and And I want to be that somebody. Sounds good. Uh, and in that in that vein, actually, have you thought about writing, um, you know, anything beyond the the genre of the novel? Right. Have you, is there any interest in working in, you know, kind of because now we're multimedia. Right. Is there any interest in working in TV or film and that type of writing? Or are you still very much a novelist novelist? I have to tell you, I am so old school. I write my novels on a typewriter. Wait, what brand? <laughs> oh, I have 12, um, but my favorite one is, the best one are the Coronas from the 30s. That's like the best time, but check this out. Wait, so this I, is pre-electric? Right, I don't like electric ones. I mm. went to a book club meeting, and I was talking to a woman and about my love of typewriters, and she says, oh, you know, I have a red one. I never use it. Um, would you like it? And I was, I, it was an Olivetti Valentine. I have a mint condition Olivetti Valentine now. And wow. she had no idea what that was then, I'm imagining. I, I told her, you know, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't like trying to get her to send it to me without letting her yeah. know. <laughs> I told her it was my dream machine and why. And she says, well, I just wanted to have a good home. And she mailed it to me. That is so nice. That's incredible. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm fascinated. I would never have guessed that you write on a typewriter, mostly because I don't guess that anyone does that anymore. But I very much, I love, I have a, um, a Smith Corona electric typewriter that I don't use as much anymore, but I love the smell of it. So it's electric, which is probably too, like, you know, too modern for, for your taste, it sounds like. But that, the, the smell of that ink, I, I very much enjoy. And all the noise. You feel like you're yeah. getting something done. Yeah. You're well, like you're creating. Yeah. Yeah. And on a, on a computer, you can get in a mood and you can hit a few keys and delete a day's work. Mm-hmm. On a typewriter, you could just be like a drama queen and snatch it out of the machine and it makes that sound and yeah. you can throw it away. <laughs> but the next day, you can pick it up and smooth it out and you still have it. Oh, I love well, that. Well, it sounds like that machine found the best possible home for it. Um, <laughs> and I hope it helps you in every way. And I want to see Atlanta Quartet. On, on my shelf soon. Um, oh, no pressure. You. No pressure. <laughs> um, thank you so much for talking to us, Terry. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for calling. I really had a good time. Thanks so much. Take care. Take care. We've been speaking with Tayari Jones, author of An American Marriage. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARV Radio Hour.